folks. Let's uh, take a look at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we will read verses uh, 26 through 29 of 1 Corinthians 11, and we'll go ahead and, and get started. In verse 26, Paul writes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Um, Paul is giving us some uh, further instruction. He does a lot of this in verse in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians concerning the Lord's Supper. And um, he specifically addresses the concept that communion can be taken in a way that's unworthy. I think it's important on Communion Sunday that we would look at the idea of the Lord's Supper and say, can we do this in a way that is unpleasing to God? <clears throat> now, the Greek word that Paul uses is the word anaxios, which means in an unworthy manner, <clears throat> excuse me, or irreverently, irreverently. Now, Cambridge Dictionary, I wanted to use the Oxford English Dictionary to be all snooty. However, it's, it's expensive and I'm poor, so Cambridge is what I have to settle for. Apparently, the poor people in England live in Cambridge, apparently. Um, however, the Oxford English Dictionary is pretty much the history of the last thousand years of English, and he should be the one consulted. However, I couldn't do it. Um, it says this, that irreverent means lacking the expected respect for official, important, or holy things that's good enough. So now we have an idea of what it means to be irreverent. Now, we don't talk about that very much, and we probably should within the church because there is a notion of reverence that is waning and not waxing in the modern church. Uh, we were at one time probably too solemn, to be honest with you. And maybe we are occasionally too loose, to be quite blunt with you. Maybe we are occasionally too loose. So let's talk about it maybe from that perspective. Um, therefore, I think it's fair to deduce from Paul's use of language. And I added the singular scholarly tradition, which produced our scriptures in English, which if you go and you go to a dictionary and you look up what anaxios means, it's going to say unworthy matter. Like every time, it's going to say unworthy manner. So we don't need to think that unworthy manner is somehow a mistranslation of Paul's words. It seems to be the only translation that we can settle on is defining unworthy manner that's a little bit more difficult. So we don't have to have any doubts that we're reading Paul's words accurately in a modern English translation because that's been, as, as long as we've had them, it's pretty much been the way we've defined that. The Apostles' warning against participating in the Lord's Supper with a practice or attitude which was unworthy of the body and blood of Jesus or devoid of the proper respect for the Lord who died for our sins. So this is a solemn occasion. And we have to find out a way through attitude, through practice, through everything about us to participate in it in a way that brings honor and glory to Him and doesn't rob this solemn occasion of all of its importance. Now, I think we must at this point in the service address those two issues. Practice and attitude before we can go forward with this sacred time. In fact, we are going to look at literally 
how we take the bread or the cup in our hands. And we are also going to examine our hearts as we do it. This is that moment, not just where we're going to walk away fully understanding it, but we're going to say, am I actually doing this the way I'm supposed to do it? So, so let's talk about those for just a moment. I, very quickly, looking specifically at what Paul said, I believe that there are at least three interpretations we must consider. There are other interpretations that are kind of intermingled in here, but I, I stuck with three. First, the partakers were participating in the Lord's Supper in an ignorant fashion. Now, I know in the South, we tend to use that word ignorant for like country and backwards. Well, we can help that. We kind of are that, so I apologize. But what I mean is this most specifically, is that we participated participated in a, in a way in which in our hearts and minds, we are not drawn to the fact that this is exactly what this represents. So when I take the bread in my hand, I take the broken body of Jesus. When I take the cup in my hand, I take in my, in my hand the blood of Jesus. Now, now, no notion of transubstantiation, of consubstantiation, any of those, those really alien terms to us, but not to some in this room, but alien to the majority of us, right, Mike? The majority. We have no, no delusions that the bread becomes literally flesh in our bellies or that the, blood becomes, the, the cup becomes literally blood in our bellies. We need no, no, no such delusion. We understand that what we do is, is symbolic, but that's like saying lesser to so infinitely greater. That's like saying the flag of a country is merely symbolic. But yet armies march behind it and take each other's lives. It may be a symbol. It absolutely is a symbol. But it's a very powerful symbol, isn't it? Now once we settle in on the fact that the bread is literally symbolic of the broken flesh of Jesus Christ who died for our sins... I can't imagine a more important symbol. I can't imagine a symbol I would want to honor more greatly than that. I can't imagine, to be honest with you, offering the bread without a trembling hand or taking it without a trembling hand. Because I know it's just water and flour. I get it. I know it is. But it stands for Him. I've said many times, this is a funeral service, complete with body. Here he is before us under a shroud. So, so that would be the, the, the primary reason. They did not realize the importance of the moment and had not fully grasped the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.25. In the same way, always, excuse me, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Words we inscribe on the table in which we do this. We remember Jesus with this time. This is, this is overwhelmed, painted, colored with the gospel. This is the gospel. We don't do it just because he was important. We do it because he saves. Each believer must be aware that taking the bread and the cup is important because it symbolizes the sacrifice of Christ. We are reverent because He died for our sins. This is important to us because the one that we remember today literally 
physically died for the crimes we as a people have committed. It is vital that we do this and it's vital that we remember this and it is vital that we are fully engaged in this because He died for us. There shall come a time upon this earth when doing what we do today will be a criminal act. It will be treasonous against the governments that reign upon, over us because we were declaring the supremacy of someone greater than them. Along with this, Paul would emphasize that both bread and cup must be taken, unlike some other groups which do just one because both carry with them the gospel of Christ to the viewing world. We take both body and blood together because Jesus gave both for our sins. And we don't want to leave one out. It's, it's important they're both together in what we do. Therefore, taking the cup in an unworthy or irreverent manner would be doing this without understanding its implications. I'll be honest with you. How many churches come and when they see the shroud, groan just a little? Because the service will be longer. Because we don't, we, don't, we don't get it. By virtue of having the blood applied to our sins, it is, it is important today that we get it. That we understand why it's important. More than just something we do four times a year. Two, earlier in chapter 11, Paul indicates that one application is that divisions in the church are motivated by slights, insults, or grudges between the membership. Was that there's one reason why maybe people could do it in an unworthy manner is because they're they're taking it and offering it while they have a grudge or a, or or have some type of uh, have some of hard feelings against someone else within the body of believers. It is an act of the family that we come together to share this. It is shared as a Sunday meal within our culture. It was traditionally an actual meal in which they sat down and supped together, very much the way Christ and His disciples supped that night. It was not tiny little morsels, but they ate together, sharing of what they had. We have reduced it down to a tiny little wafer, but it was not so to start with. We have followed a tradition of convenience that does that. So we can have it in the sanctuary and not in a dining hall. Traditionally, it was not so. Christ dealt with this issue through the sacrificial system. We used the old sacrificial system back in Matthew chapter 5. And in verse 23 and 24, He says this, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother is something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So what he said was that the interpersonal can affect the giving and the receiving of a gift. The interpersonal can affect that um, task that we come together to complete today in which I can take the cup or take the bread and do it in an unworthy fashion. Do the, offer this gift in an unworthy way. Accept this in an unworthy fashion. Why? Because there's a grudge. Because God hates that. God hates division. He hates cliques. He hates being left out. So He wants to bring us together as a family. So if we have something against someone else or someone has something against us, what should we do? 
Put it down. Put it down. Go to them. Be restored to your brother. Be reconciled to your brother. Reconciled to your sister. Do it. Why? Because that will taint the offering. Reconciliation on brothers and sisters is more important than the offering. He said, stop what you're doing and be reconciled. There can be no gospel proclamation with a divided church. Our feuds and disharmony taint everything for which we claim to stand. Everything. Paul emphasizes this in Ephesians 4, 32. When he wrote this, he said, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So our goal is to be the kind of church that is a forgiving church where even the most broken people can flourish. Now, I've said this before, and I've become more convinced of it. Um, it's so easy for us to fall into kind of the two poles. And that means we become an undisciplined mess where, where the church itself never deals with the, the difficulties of its membership, the difficulties of its family, where there's just simply no discipline applied. But there's also this kind of, to be honest with you, kind of wicked uh, neo-reformed thing out there that's just Pharisaic, to be honest with you, where they want to see, you know, church discipline as a checklist. Well, we accomplished this and we got, and that's okay. No, the, the goal of this is always reconciliation. The goal of this is not discipline, but bringing brothers and sisters back into faith, back into a, a fellowship with each other. That's always been the goal. God wants us united together against the world. God wants us to be the first thing that I've said for a long time is the most important thing. You want to apply something to your marriage? Forgive everything. Be incredibly hard to offend within your marriage. And it'll last forever. Tell you what, if you're easy to offend within your marriage, there are always cracks in the foundation. Any relationship, the currency on which the relationships thrive is forgiveness. We can't have a relationship here if we are, if we are easily offended. Now, almost every church I've ever served in, in my life, to be honest with you, I digress just a moment. Almost every church I've ever served in, in my life was really composed of a whole lot of people. There's one pastor friend of mine said we're like coiled snakes. They were looking for something to get mad about. They couldn't wait because their lives were so dreary and so gospel pointless. They lived for the offense. They were only happy when they were mad. They were only happy when they could find a fault with something. They were happier staying home angry than being in church not. Because they wanted to stay home. All they needed was for you to give them a reason. Well, guess what? People will do every time. Give you a reason, won't they? If I'm looking for bad things, people will never fail to satisfy my desires. But what do we do? We combat that. We say, we're just going to forgive it. We're just forgiving people. If you say, I look fat today, so what? Maybe I do. If you said the sermon was too long or it's poor, well, maybe it was. But it's not going to offend me. I'm not going to go home and cry about it. I'm not going to hold a grudge against you. She's not going to do it. Now, I'll be honest with you, that's the opposite of the way most so-called believers want to govern themselves, isn't it? The exact opposite. 
Most of us want to be super Pharisaic about things that offend us. We have all kinds of lines that cannot be crossed. Now, we want forgiveness for us. So if we step over the line, we're okay. You should forgive me. But now for me, my things are serious. I'm here to say there are very, very few reasons why we should ever be so offended that we would even consider breaking fellowship. And the very same reason, in your marriage, are very, very, there's just a precious handful of, of, of enormous offenses that should ever end a marriage. Enormous offenses. Earth-shattering things that should, should end a marriage. Because fellowships built by Jesus are meant to last the duration of our lives. Whether it be with the church or it be with a, with a, with a man or a woman, they are meant to last the duration of our lives. They're supposed to be durable, not because we are strong, but because he is strong. Because he is enduring. Because he is persevering. Not because we are. Our goal is to be a kind and forgiving church where even the most broken people can flourish. The communion must bring us closer to that reality. And when you take up the wafer, it is an opportunity to forgive so many things. It is a reminder that you've been forgiven of deep, dark horrible sins, and then now it's time to forgive your brother, forgive your sister. It's time to look down into that cup and see the blood of Jesus and say, it's not worth holding a grudge. Why would I? What kind of child am I that would hold a grudge when confronted with the blood of the one who died for me? How dare I? Finally, three, the most common modern interpretation of this passage is that Christians would make the mistake of taking communion with willful, unconfessed sin in their lives. I've preached it that way so many times. Now, certainly the Corinthians were struggling with personal sin, hence Paul's condemnation of their indulgence and competition during the Lord's Supper. He corrected them in verses 33 and 34 of the same chapter, the very last two, in which he says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things that will give directions when I come. He was concerned with their immoral self-centeredness that was being displayed literally while they're supposed to honor Jesus. They're displaying how much they care about themselves and how little they care about each other. That's, that's, that is rampant wickedness. It's all that is. And he absolutely rebukes it. It's a lack of self-sacrifice, which was probably endemic to the whole church. This is not just an issue here. It's probably for Paul an issue in everything they do. He's just highlighting it through the Lord's Supper. Say, look, this is what kind of people you are. You just care about yourselves. Stop caring about yourself and start caring about others. It's a common thing throughout the Gospels, right? It's a common thing that we know we're supposed to put everyone else first. Make ourselves last. We know this. Paul responds by saying, think about each other. In this context, the communion service is understandably a call to examine yourself before taking it. The notion that anyone who's struggling with sin, failing in terms of repentance and continuing to renew the battle against the daily is undeserving of participation is biblically problematic. The way we've always preached it was, you can't take it if you have unrepentant sin. Well, theologically and logically, we can respond to that. Who in here is absolutely sure you've got no unrepentant sin? 
I don't see any hands, so we can put this away. I didn't raise my hand. I can't administer it because I'm not absolutely certain I've got no unrepentant sin in my life. Or what if I pass it to you and you're mad at me and it flares up when you're about to take it? You've just sinned against, not being mad at me is not necessarily a sin, but in all likelihood, you have now sinned against your Lord in the second before you took it. It's a very problematic interpretation to say that unrepentant sin. Now, mind you, if I have conscious unrepentant sin that I know I am guilty of, and I know that God has condemned, and I have stubbornly refused to repent of my sin, then there's a problem there. But the idea that we that I could somehow scour myself clean before accepting the bread, accepting the cup, is biblically difficult to do. Look, most of confusion comes from affiliation in Protestant denominations with what's been called the higher life or the Keswick view, which is the idea that one of these days we will be so sanctified that we'll be done with sin. That Brother Kyle, you'll just, there'll come a day in your life where you just never sin anymore. Now, everybody doesn't know to call it the Keswick view, but there's a lot of people that think that, don't they? And they will literally sin by telling you they don't sin anymore. It is biblical nonsense of the highest order and accepted in churches everywhere. Not just some little splinter group somewhere. There are a lot of people that believe that. A lot of people that believe that. So I think there's this idea that's infected our interpretation of the Lord's Supper that says that somehow you could just not. It's for people that aren't sinning anymore, which I think is pure nonsense. Look, all of us are struggling with sin. And virtually all of us are, are failing momentarily, excuse me, all of us fail momentarily, possibly in the seconds before receiving the communion, to live up to the standards of the Scripture. We are still sinners taking this. We accept this. A sinner out there is going to accept this bread from a sinner up here. A sinner is going to dispatch ordained men to go give you bread. And they're sinners too. The truth of the command recorded in, in, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight is in the term used for examine, dokimos in the Greek. This word refers to the practice of testing coins to ensure that they were genuine and not counterfeit. And this command goes right in line with Paul's later teaching to the very same people in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves and you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So is he talking about whether or not you have unrepentant sin? No, not at all. He's talking about whether you are a real believer. Who, who can accept the bread and accept the cup? Those who have been born again into Jesus Christ. That is his command. See if you are real or counterfeit. Now, I know why we preach the other one. Because I learned was about the first week I was a pastor preaching all the time to, to Southern Baptists was that you can call them sinners, but you can't call them lost. You can, you can warn people about having unrepentant sin in their lives because that doesn't make them feel very bad. But nobody, even if they're living lost, wants to have you point out the fact that they are living lost. But that's what Paul is commanding we do today. 
He's commanded that each and every one of us that reaches out a trembling hand for the cup or the bread does so having first examined our lives and our hearts to be absolutely abundantly sure. Abundantly sure that we are born again into Christ. In other words, the call in this passage is determined personally during the time preceding whether or not you are genuinely born again. Today, right now, the Lord's Supper is for everyone in this room a gospel opportunity. It's not a sacrament or a dead symbol, but it is a living, breathing gospel moment in which you can be born again. And all begins with a question. Am I in Christ or not? So I'm going to step down. We will have a time of invitation. We will worship for just a, another moment. You will have opportunity to examine yourself. And I beg you, take this opportunity. Let's pray. Father God, I adore you and thank you and ask you, please, God, to bless us now as we gather around the table, Father, and as, as the, the veil is removed, Father, that we will do, God, what you command us to do, that each and every one of us, beginning with me, will examine ourselves to be sure, God, that we truly belong to you. Because if we do not, Father, then now is the time. Today is the day, Father God, and I pray, Lord, that you would summon men and women, draw them to yourself. Father God, we adore you and we thank you. We ask you, please God, to bless us. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.